Hey, music lovers, the Cannamom Show podcast in collaboration with Lambkin Guitars is giving away a custom-built, one-of-a-kind electric guitar built by Josh Lampkin. The solid one-piece hemp wood body includes a built-in glass bowl piece. Yeah, you heard me right. You can take a hit and then play a lick. Now's your chance to help the Cannamom Show crush cannabis stigma with your entry. Register for the Hemp Guitar Giveaway online at lampkinguitars.com. That's L-A-M-K-I-N guitars.com. The drawing will be part of a 420 celebration at the Goods Dispensary in Somerville, Massachusetts, where the guitar is on display for the month of April. But don't worry, you don't have to live in Mass or be present to win. Visit LampkinGuitars.com to scope out the Hemp Guitar giveaway details and entry form. You'll even find a video of what could be your guitar in action. L-A-M-K-I-N-Guitars.com If you're a cannabis business owner looking to expand into new markets and need guidance and support you can trust, consider Collateral Base a group that has done it before in multiple merit-based and limited market states. Collateral Base was founded by an experienced cannabis attorney with highly educated consultants with master's degrees and years of experience in the cannabis industry. The Collateral Base team is confident they know cannabis licensing better than any of their peers. And I encourage you to see for yourself. It just takes one phone call. If you're ready to expand your cannabis business into new limited markets, contact Collateral Base today at 309-306-1095. That's 309-306-1095. Or visit collateralbase.com. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to another episode of Everything is Personal. We have a very special guest. Uh, we were just talking about whether we remember crossing paths, so we'll, we'll get into that in, in a little bit. But uh, without further ado, Mr. Milan Patel, who is the CEO and co-founder of Pathogen DX. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, Len. I appreciate it today, taking the next hour of your time and our lives talking about <laughs> cool, different things. Well, so let me roll back. I'll see if I can refresh your memory and maybe together we can uh, recall where this was because I agree with you. There's a billion different conferences uh, that I was at, that you're at as well. But uh, I used to work as a consultant for a company called Medicinal Genomics, uh, which yeah. you are probably uh, familiar with. So my job, I was working directly with Kevin McKernan, my job, mm-hmm. and I had nothing to do with the pathogen stuff that they were mm-hmm. working on. My job originally was to go uh, to different cultivators, get plant material, bring it to my lab, extract the DNA, and send it to a sequencer they had in Woburn in Boston so we can start Canopedia, which was the uh, the cultivar database. Mm-hmm. So that's what, what I was doing there. And uh, I don't remember which conference it was at, but I remember this is before I launched our company, Endocana Health or EndoDNA. I remember walking up to you and I thought it was fascinating that you had this uh, sort of microarray sequencing uh, because I wanted to do it for the human side. Because uh, well, the, the parent company of medicinal genomics at that time was this 
a PGX company, Cortigen Life Sciences. Yeah. And, uh, and I was really focusing on human genetics. And I had a light bulb moment. I was like, well, we have like, you know, human DNA here, which I'm really getting involved with. And I already did all the sequencing for, uh, or, you know, genotyping at that time, or all these different uh, cultivars. Why can we bring those two together? So I approached you at that time, and I asked you if you're doing anything on the human side. And, he, and you were like, no, we're focusing on the plant. And then you're explaining to me how your microarray works, which was a very good education at that time. But I would say probably at least five years ago or so, but I don't know. If yeah, this I was going to say probably 2018. And oh. now uh, I think where we're sort of parachuting and landing is probably the AOAC meeting, if I remember that, yeah. yep. where you and I talked. And um, it was, you were so leading edge, bleeding, bleeding edge in terms of even back then. Um, and I think that, you know, they were only, there were like, you guys with what you were doing. I know Reggie Guadino at Steep Hill was doing that. I know that, um, yeah. is it uh, Phylos Biosciences with Milo? I can't remember the guy's name. I'm, Mo- I'm sorry. Mo- Mowgli. Mowgli. Mowgli, yeah. Yeah, so the three, the three sort of, you know, um, starship troopers out there that were really, <laughs> really far. I mean, fundamentally, what you were trying to uh, address was something that is really needed fundament- fundamentally in terms of doing what I would consider um, genetic strain analysis, really taking the, 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 the strain of the, the, the plant in terms of understanding the DNA. And, and, I, and I, I'm trading on your, your turfdom here because I should not talk. Uh, you should be the one that be talking about it. But the nutshell is where I thought that the natural intersection is, is you know, in the pharma world, they use the word pharmacogenomics. Yeah. So it's the, equi- it's the equivalent, equivalent of pharmacogenomics in many ways in what the, the fundamental uh, effort that you were undertaking, Je- Reggie was doing, even uh, Mowgli was doing to a large degree in, in building that base of knowledge that would literally fruition into a, a huge market, you know? Yeah. And I, I appreciate you saying that. And, and, you know, our overall goal was always precision medicine mm-hmm. and I don't care if, uh, you know, people aren't saying, you know, cannabis, not really medicine. The FDA didn't, whatever, whatever. We know that it's medicine. And hence what you're doing is, I mean, it's one of the most important things because if you're, if you're taking medicine or any therapeutic product, you want to know what you're putting into your body. Mm-hmm. And it's it's and it's always mind boggling to me when I go into a vitamin store or a GNC or anything like that, and I get my supplements, and I go out and I get my supplements in LA where I live, or I go to Pennsylvania, uh, Philly where I came from, and I don't have to worry about it. I'm getting a supplement. I know that it's clean, and I know that it's been tested. I know it's the same, but you don't have anything like that in cannabis. And we can't get out of the dark ages without having some consistency. So I, I really respect and appreciate what you're doing. But let me, before I get into like the, the nuts and bolts of, uh, of uh, what you're doing, let me find out a little bit more about you. Uh, so mm-hmm. where, did, where did you grow up? I was, I was born in Kenya, Africa. Uh, and about five years of age, we were kicked out of the country. 
uh, by Idi Amin. I mean, I think everybody's seen Radon and, you know, all those specific movies back then. Um, Radon so and Tebby. Yeah. That's the movie. <laughs> you remember that movie? I remember oh, yeah. it too. And the cool thing is, well, it's cool is not necessarily, we were literally had to pack up one suitcase and then move to England because, of course, the, the, the British Empire at that time was crumbling, but the, everybody was a colony under that rule. And so we, were, we landed in London, England. I grew up in, in, in England, in London from five to around 17. And then I, I decided to come west to the great United States of America, where I got my education. Um, albeit I, it was Midwest in Detroit, Michigan, at the University of Detroit, right down in, 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 you know, Detroit, uh, in McNichols and Six Mile, where you, you heard gunshots. You'd go to like a Coney Island and there'd be three inch bulletproof glass, but it would have been the best, you know, hamburgers and chili fries that you could ever have. Um, nothing better than that. But, you know, the good news is, is that, um, I got my degrees there, both in electrical engineering, biomedical at Michigan, and then an MBA. And, and, you know, the thing is, I, I, I got a lot of experience in large companies, like in the automotive sector, you know, and then had my first startup when I was about, uh, you know, when I was about 30 something years old in a manufacturing company. And I grew, grew that and sort of sold it, but wasn't, you know, enough to put our feet up where you and I can drink martinis on a yacht, you know, in the Caribbean. Right. So, uh, the ultimate thing is, is that at the end of the day, um, I finally came to Arizona. Um, I got a job at Intel and, um, that's really where I learned about technology. And I'd learned a little bit about technology. I was in finance and technology. I learned how they, they made high-tech stuff. But the reason why I'd done biomedical is I felt like there's things that you can do in that area that could really, truly impact people's health and lives. And it wasn't until, you know, really understanding how to sort of make, make you know, grow companies, make them successful, have them make money. but you know, all of those previous experiences were all nice and well until I sort of, you know, invested in a the parent company to Pathogen. And and then, you know, that was focused on uh, human genetics, specifically for organ transplants, recipients matching DNA. Right. And, um, you know, the, the company was all grant funded. Culture wasn't really leaning forward in making product that you and I could see the benefit on that. So we pivoted into cannabis and, you know, it was a perfect storm and a combination, the convergence of a different technology in a, you know, in a cottage industry, minds open. It was all about the plant. Mm. And those four things, when it comes together, allowed us to do really cool and different things. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a great path. Uh, and there is some, some parts of that that I want to dig a little bit deeper mm-hmm. into, but uh, moving from Kenya to England, London, did you say, or was it? Um, yeah, London. So first of all, there's a culture shock. Second of all, the weather that you have to deal with, uh, the food. Uh, it, by the way, I lived in England for like six months, but I lived in Northampton, which is probably a completely different, like they speak a different language there. And I didn't understand anything anybody said. They're like, they're speaking English. <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't know if it's English, but it's not English that I understand. And I was there in 1998 during the World Cup. So it was even worse because everybody would go to the pubs really early 
and pint after pint. Drunk. Yeah, so we don't have to <laughs> understand anybody. <laughs> it was just like that. But man, how? So you can't, you moved with your? Uh, do you have siblings? You moved with your parents? Or yeah, I've got a sister. She's one year older. She lives in Chicago now. But we moved. There was two of us, and then mom and dad were. You know, we were living in one one room, and we slept on the floor. It was nine months. She would cook with a little cooker in the same room. We would have to borrow and use the bathroom when we can. And so it was, you know, it's literally, it's a, it sounds like a sad story that, you know, mom would, the, the suitcase that we traveled with would be the same suitcase. She'd go to the grocery store to bring the groceries back. And, you know, it's, it's every refugee story, right, at the end of the day, or every immigrant story, immigrant, not necessarily. Yeah. Re- yeah. And so, yeah, England was an interesting culture shock because, um racism was very prevalent and you know they couldn't understand the difference between a pakistani and an indian and that called the other person a pakistani and this part of life you know you you um you don't you know you don't want to experience it but it is it is what it is and it just it just you know at some point the integration of different cultures come in one place just like la or new york and many cities in the united states just like in london and you realize People are here to stay. It doesn't matter yeah. what color, brown, black, yellow, or white, you know, at the end of the day. It's it's interesting because, so I've been to India a few times. In the, yeah. I've been to uh, Chennai, Bangalore, Calcutta, all these places. But some of the best Indian food that I've ever had in my life was in England. Mm-hmm. And it was just, it was just fantastic. And there was, it was a very rich, uh, you know, Indian, also Pakistani, very rich culture from that that part of the world in, in England. So it's interesting, I guess, if you're if it's early on in that immigration, there would be some racism, but they probably were saying, hey, you're going to take our jobs and you're going to do this yeah. and you do the same thing as because I'm an immigrant. Uh, I was born in Lithuania and mm-hmm. uh, I immigrated uh, to the U.S. when I was six years old. So my parents uh, came and you know, we were everybody was wondering, you're Russian. It was 1979, 1980, uh, America boycotted the Olympics. And I'm like, I'm not even Russian, but (laughs) you're pointing to me. I I came from there. I'm the one that escaped from there, but uh, all right, whatever. So it was a a very interesting time. So I can relate to the the whole immigrant thing, but uh, I'm sure it was a little bit different in uh, I love, Yeah, and I love the Indian food in, in London. I do think it's probably the best place to have Indian food. Uh, I do, I do like the cultural aspect of the city uh, in many ways. I wish it wasn't the weather that they have, but in the best time to go is in July and August. And they have two months of the, the best years because there's no humidity and it, yeah. it truly is a, a wonderful melting pot for doing really good things. And, and there's a, there's a sort of a very grounded way of living there because people don't make a lot of money. You know, it's not like the United States of America, where if you're in New York and you live in Manhattan, <laughs> it's a lot of zeros in people's bank accounts as opposed to other places. For sure. So, uh, all right. So Detroit and then from Detroit, you got your uh, you went to Arizona and you, you started this. Now, originally, it's microarray technology, right? Mm-hmm. Microarray technology was developed for, uh, you know, human uh, purpose. So maybe for our audience, and I kind of understand this, but just for our audience, what is the, the what is microarray technology? What, what does that mean? Microarray technology is basically a, a little chip. In simple words, it's a chip. And on on the uh, if you looked at one of the wells of a 96-well plate for testing, 
they have 96 different wells, and each well represents an individual uh, sample that you can test. In the world of you know, human testing, it would be a nasopharyngeal swab like we're all familiar with COVID. So they would, they, it would be able to do 96 different human samples. Now, within one of those wells, at the bottom of the well, what we've done is we printed using our proprietary patented technology for printing little dots. And each dot is called an oligonucleotide. And mm -hmm. those little dots represent a genetic sequence. And we can do about 300 of them. So if you divide 300 by three, you get 100. So you can look at 100 targets that are all different. So let's just say target one is E. coli. Target two is, target two dot is salmonella, aspergillus flavus. And you can do 100 different distinct things all in a single sample. So you're doing looking at many things in a single test, in a single well. And that is very important. In cannabis, you gender, you know, there's, they've got salmonella, stec one, stec two, and four aspergillus species. So you're looking at seven things. And in some cases, as time goes on, they'll add listeria, they'll add listeria, they'll add mm. staph, aureus. They may, they may, may add a three or four or five more. And when you're, when you're starting to add that, that's what that does. The microarray is able to look, do, look at many things when you know what you're looking for. It does it like nobody's business. Better than next generation sequencing because next generation sequencing looks for everything, yeah. both not just the needles in the haystack, but even the straws in the haystack. <laughs> and that's important at the end of the day. It's not so, yeah, that's the difference between yeah, what a microarray is. Yeah, it's a lot more comprehensive. So, yeah. so we have, uh, you know, we, we use uh, Illumina technology, we use a chip yeah. too. We, we uh, genotype about 675,000 SNPs on a human side. So I'm very familiar with the, the well-played technology that, that you're uh, describing. Uh, so back in my days working with uh, medicinal genomics, uh, you know, Cortigen, I would, I would assume that they're sort of a competitor in the space, even though I didn't work on, on that side of the business, but they were big on uh, quantitative uh, qPCR. Mm -hmm. uh, so I'm just curious for, for the audience as well, uh, just so they can understand what what is the difference, and why is microarray uh, better than uh, PCR? So the two things is um, qPCR basically it was a, a Nobel Prize award back in 1970, and it was the first molecular technology for DNA and RNA testing. A very very good technology, and the difference is in the amplification of the sample. The probe and the primers work within the sample. And that works really well and really efficiently. Um, the issue is what happens with qPCR is, is that after it hits a certain threshold, the amplification stops, the reaction stops. It tells you you've got the answer. Beautiful, right? In the case of DNA microarrays, the amplification step is an endpoint PCR, meaning it's like a sequencing-based amplification. So you're using the primer to its endpoint, meaning until it's completely consumed and and finished. So you're it's continuing to search and amplify that analyte tar target. And what that does is the difference is you get a much higher level of sensitivity than qPCR. And when you take that amplified material and you drop it into the DNA microarray, that's where you get maximum specificity because 
in each of those probes, you're getting what is called single-stranded DNA that now binds and hybridizes at room temperature. And so you will, there's literally very little to no chance of getting a false positive at that point. Yeah. As a, that's the difference. No, I agree with you 100%. Now that we bored people with our being science <laughs> <laughs> we can dig deeper we're, if you want. We're, we're really getting geeked out on this, aren't we? I know. <laughs> I know. That's what people ask me about. You know, you know what it is, though? The reason why I want people to understand this is because one of the things that people ask us about is like they watch TV and they see somebody on CSI take a DNA and they swab something, they put it in there, and like, Oh, here's here's your results. And I'm like, no, it doesn't work that way. That like it it takes like five days to incubate the sand. Like I'm trying to explain to people that this is a very, very uh this is a very, very specific, precise process. And it it is uh and it's specific because it's ninety-nine point whatever percent of effective you, you know your your uh, your device your collection device uh mean means a lot too we you know we we work with uh, dna genotech for our device we don't mm-hmm. have uh one but it has to go through a process of uh making sure that it's validated and it's not just a quick easy thing no. i used to i used to walk around with a mini q uh, pcr and uh, and use that i'm like I don't, have, I don't have gloves on. Like it's not the same. It's not the same sterile process as you would. It's a huge difference between sending a sample to you know a CLIA lab and extracting it. So I, I just want people to understand there is a, a very specific science behind this. Um, Milan, you already explained a little bit in from a high level about why cannabis, but did you have? A personal affinity for the plant, like I understand the business aspect. Uh-huh. You looked at it, you did a SWOT analysis, you said, "Hey, there's a convergence of opportunities." But did you have uh, any feeling about the plant? What's uh, yourself? In all honesty, I, I didn't, and and I'm just being truly honest. What it was is my fundamental personal belief is like I don't, you know, I I invested in the parent company, mm-hmm. and I really wanted to see this type of technology commercialized. And I, and I felt that there was $15 million of NIH grant funding that went into it. And I, I don't like, just like you don't like, nobody likes waste, especially our federal tax dollars went into something that's so innovative, so different that what I said is, I said, well, look, you know, we can continue to try to scale the human diagnostics, clinical diagnostics world, but we'd have to address this with the FDA. And that would be many years and a lot of lot of lot of money so i made the assumption that it, it might be best to be in a market where the whether fda isn't it right now to prove commercially this type of technology and the good news is we backed it up to steeple labs confidence analytics you know those two specific labs at the end of the day that really helped us see the is there a product it's called a tip, typical product technology market fit model, general stuff that, you know, these big molecular diagnostics like Cortigen must have done, these companies have done. And the good news is it was just, it was just the light bulb went on when they said, well, we need to look at many things in that sample. And, you know, the idea was that, okay, then it opened up my mind that this wasn't only just in cannabis, it's in food, it's in environmental, it's in water, it's in humans. And, you know, that's how you know, the cannabis effectively, and then after now, several years into this land, it's like you realize just how 
contaminated this product is. And I, I just think that at the end of the day, you know, purity does matter because you just brought up one point earlier on. In pharma, they have to run sterility testing. Yeah. And it's not just the whether the human pathogens are harmful on a pharmaceutical drug, but even if a bug lands on it while in a manu- in a pharmaceutical manufacturing plant, they have to test for the other non-human pathogens because before you put it in the body. And I think that's where the crux of the issue is that we're dealing with within the current cannabis world right now within the cultivation facility. You've got mucor, you've got boitritis, fusarium. These are all you know, powdery mildew. You've got, you know, even candida. Think about it. Candida, which candida auris is a, you know, drug-resistant bug that doesn't have a solution. Yeah. And if it mutates to a point, we've got problems, Houston, you know? That's why I was going to ask you, which which pathogens are important to test for? Mm-hmm. And also, are there regulations that like... Uh, the regulators agree on the standards, lab standards, because why Why are they different standards from state to state? Because I know we don't have federal regulations with this. It makes little sense. But this is for human safety. And we've done, you know, other therapeutic products. That's why I brought up supplements, because I'm not saying they're, you know, it's not a, it's not a drug per FDA definition, but you still know that you're putting a quote unquote clean product in your body, most likely, because there's standards. Regardless of CGMP standards, there are standards for testing, for bacterial testing and, uh, and all those other things. So is there, is there an agreement between standards from different states of what should be tested? And is there a body that oversees this? Yes. So the, the simple answer is no, there isn't an agreement with these <laughs> regulators. And, and the, I knew the and, answer, you know, by the way. I was just I know you did. It's, it's, it's such a, tr- it's not even a trick question. So, uh, but, but, you know, why is the case? Why is that the case? Because I think that, you know, when you looked at, um, you know, every industry where it's gone through prohibition, you know, there's been some time dimension associated with storming, forming, norming. And I think that with the states having to take this, this role of being the, you know, the, the, the rabbit that's going to take, uh, you know, take the first, you know, legalization at the, at the state level, every state regulator thinks differently. There's a high level of influence with the grower base to how do I say it? You know, if, if, if the, if the cannabis, uh, if the cannabis cultivation world all all the stakeholders came from the pharmaceutical world, we wouldn't have a problem. Right. Okay. Yeah. So it came from a very sort of illegal side of the industry, whether we want to admit it or not, because of the definition of, you know, the, the narcotics act, right? Blah, blah, blah. So the nutshell is, you know, the, the drivers behind this were all human behaviorally driven. And then there's a lack of education with the regulators really not knowing that what makes sense to do should we follow the FDA BAM model, the bacterial analytical manual model. And we know that the the cast of bugs that are harmful on leafy greens, could that apply, right? The cast of bugs that are, you know, fungal related on agricultural product, could that apply? You could have a good starting point, but they don't. They're all over the place. So so just, I'm sorry to interrupt, just a thought popped in my head. No, it's okay. So you have, so there's a hemp act. And there is, uh, you know, CBD, uh, however you define it. Uh, I don't agree with the 0.3% THC definition, but there there are standards on there. 
So this is an ag product. So an ag product should have standards of testing for an agricultural product because it's going to be ingested just like food. Have have they made any inroads to look at, look, fine, we'll separate cannabis, uh, put it on the side for a second, but at, at the very least, hemp, since it is regulated and it does have you know, a body that oversees that, like the USDA. Have they done anything there? They really haven't, except for the potency piece that you just basically talked about. It just stopped there, right? Yeah. <laughs> I think that, you know, tea time's over, right? So the, we're being, we've been asking, what is the micro requirements for hemp testing to a large degree? Now, the good news is some states just basically did the copy-paste, right? right? You know, and they said, whatever's being applied to cannabis will be applied to hemp. But then there's massive uproar because, you know, the price of hemp versus the price of cannabis. And then there's all of that, you know, the gyrations associated with that. So in, in a positive tone, I think the Western part of the United States is starting to look alike. There's a harmonization of their standards. If you look at California, if you look at, um, you know, Colorado, Nevada, Arizona, you're looking at, you know, even Washington, Oregon starting next year will be like, the rest of these guys, Washington's a little bit behind, but I think they'll add aspergillus. And suddenly, those states are all looking alike. The good news is it's starting to show this, this consistency around this, this general cast of bugs that's becoming the standard. The, the, the company that's the organizations are overseeing the certification is called AOAC. And they took a very leadership role around about two, three years ago to literally sort of say, look, we're going to take a step, we're going to take a, a, you know, a step forward. We're going to make sure that we have a, a, a proficiency test. Uh, no, I mean, a, a yeah, PTM test that can be certified across these different methods, whether it's from medicinal genomics or, you know, pathogen DX and other competitors. And that will be the, the approach. And then, you know, the good news is once that organization starting to do it, the regulations that the state started to, you know, include AOAC in their in their regulation write-up. So it it sort of started to settle in, right? So if you have the ability right now, you know, President Biden reaches out to uh, Milan Patel and says, hey, uh, you have the ability to create a standard for the entire country. What should we do? What should we what should we test for and how should it be tested? Uh, what will be your your advice? I, you know, I, I do believe that, uh, that the, the organisms that have historically caused trouble, like Stech E. coli 1 and 2 pathogenic, Salmonella enterica pathogenic, I think Listeria monocytogenes on edibles pathogenic, right? Even though they may bake cookies, if they handle them, problem number one. And I think those would be three definitively. I do think that the aspergillus, the four species, pathogenic. And the reason why is if you're immunocompromised, pre-existing conditions, you're using it for nausea, pain, whatever, then at the end, you're smoking it, that inhalation could be lung-related. And we don't want to see lung disease or in you know deaths at that point, especially from a medicinal perspective. So I think those are the, the general ones. I think there's certainly ones that are have, have been talked about such as staph aureus, but I wouldn't put those on yet right now. Um, but those are the ones, those seven or eight ones, I think would, would become the ultimate standard 
nationally if I was talking to President Biden and he said, well, what what would what makes sense to do? Right. Yeah. At the end of the day. Yeah. And I agree with that, especially. And you mentioned like smoking, vaping. I mean, we've, mm-hmm. we've had an issue already in the past. And, you know, you have all kinds of different issues with vaping uh, as well. So, yeah, having standards. And it's so interesting to me because I talk to people all the time that they purchase CBD and they, they purchase it in a CBD store or they purchase it in, the, you know, online. Mm-hmm. But I'm like, there's no it hasn't been tested. Like you're, no. you're purchasing a product and you're taking it with all your other supplements. And, you know, and there's people who are immunocompromised or people, you know, had COVID and they were, they were consuming uh, CBD as part of their regimen. For whatever reason, it's fine. I, this isn't like the time to talk about how CBD, it can impact the COVID or not, but they're still taking it. And if you're immunocompromised, especially, uh, you don't know what you're putting in your body. So it's really interesting to me that there is no standard of, uh, of testing for pathogens in, the, in CBD, at least CBD. Cannabis, yeah, there are definitely a lot more regulations in place, but uh, yeah, it's something we have to... Definitely, definitely consider, and I, and I appreciate you know your your push for this, and hopefully it'll it'll become a standard. Um, wanted to ask you on the uh, on the business side. First of all, mm-hmm. how did how did COVID impact your business? And I, mm-hmm. I know that you've you've been doing COVID testing as well, but was that was that a conscious pivot at the time uh, when COVID happened? Given that, yeah, brilliant question. Love that question. Um, it was March 2020, to be precise, and we had a board meeting. And our, our ultimate goal is to, to make this technology a household name, just like Julius Petri. Julius, it, Petri dish did its work in terms of 1890 for 120, 30 years. And my basically uh, drop mic statement is I think that the, the challenges we, we are facing right now globally um, the industries that are facing these challenges are are more daunting than what technologies that were invented about 130 years ago in terms of turnaround time, accuracy, in terms of speed, and even cost. And I think that what I'm saying here is, is that we've got food and environmental uh, and agricultural sustainability issues, okay? And so going back to that point is that, you know, I think that, at the end of the day, um, I fundamentally feel that you know we need to we need to address these things from that perspective, right? Um, mm. Okay, and what was your question again? Because I just like got a, like a. I was just moment. asking. I was just I was just asking how COVID impacted your business. Oh yeah. So so we we you know our approach is is you know make this the standard in cannabis and hemp testing this type of technology, then food and then clinical. But what happened is COVID brought the doorstep t- to us. And we, we, when, the, when the federal government said we have a public health emergency and they, want, they were willing for any and all sort of tech uh, method developers like ours to, be, to have the opportunity to submit an EUA, we said, this is the time. And the yeah. reason it wasn't so much a commercial opportunity, it was a credibility of the technology in the eyes of the FDA. And that was the investment we want to make. We wanted the FDA, FDA to look at this technology and say, this thing cannot just detect COVID. The real benefit was the variance, the SNP level detection at the, at the mutational level for SARS-CoV-2 in the S gene 
when we had the S gene dropout for all these different mutations, variants from alpha to now. And it was the, that was the pivot. So from 2020 March up until now, even now we sell COVID variant tests to, to identify these variants much faster than next-gen sequencing. And that, that's what helped us. And it, 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 it also brought a significant amount of, sorry about the dog, he's going nuts. So it brought up uh, essentially a lot of um, opportunity in terms of applying the learnings from the FDA on how you do proper regu- regulations, how you develop a, an assay or a test through a design control, design history files on what the FDA expects for human clinical, uh, you know, um, uh, diagnostic testing. So, so how do you, I mean, I think I read that you raised a uh, series B round a year or two ago, whatever, which, which is a whole other conversation as it, as it is, because we're in, a, we're in our series B, uh, yeah. and gr- grateful for Merida to take the lead on that, but we're still raising money. I, and I saw who invested. Yeah. Thank you. We're, 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 That's a we're still deal. out there. We're still out there, but thank you. It's a, especially in this environment, it, it's a, it's a big deal. But uh, raising raising funds if for cannabis with the capital markets and all that stuff, it's a it's it's definitely challenging. And uh, some of the people that uh, you know participate in your round are friends of ours uh, as well. But mm-hmm. utilizing utilizing the capital that you you brought in, what do you do to let people know that you exist? Like, what is your go to market? How do you how do you let people know about your your product and services? Uh, well, what we have, a, we you know, the market we serve in Canada is about two two hundred to three hundred testing labs. Mm-hmm. So it's not as big a market as opposed to twenty or thirty thousand cultivators in Canada in hemp and cannabis. So it's a very manageable go to market strategy at key conferences, key speaking events like at AOEC even just a, a direct mail campaign because those labs labs have to dis- disclose you know within each state that they're certified and those that that's that information is pretty pretty um publicly available so the go to market piece of it is very very straightforward in terms of understanding the regs to de- 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 defining what we need to do in terms of the testing products we need to develop how to get them validated, how to get them satis- uh, certified. And then we know our, our sales force is pretty, pretty, um, pretty effective in what they do, but it's the technology does half the job. Okay. Mm-hmm. And this is a different technology than QPCR. So it, it's solving a lot more of the pain points that customers are dealing with in the cannabis sector. Um, you know, pricing of these, the, the panel for price testing is coming down at the end of the day. And so the nutshell is, is that, you know, we, we're, our pricing is very, very cost effective for, you know, doing multiplexing of multi, both bacterial and fungal targets for us, for a set cost for the lab. And they, they do it in a six hour window without enrichment. So, so do you actually sell the collection device to lab and they, they actually send that back for, for genotyping? Is that, is that how it works? No, actually- no. So yeah, this is a great question. I'm sorry if I wasn't clear. Our purpose in life is just um, we sell testing kits and equipment to 120 testing labs across 36 different states. Got it. So all we do is we provide the, the kits. The labs go out or the samples come into the labs, and then they process the labs using sample extraction, DNA extraction, and then they follow our protocol 
uh, manufacturer's protocol to do the proper testing. Do you have to train them? Do you have like a yeah? We we, we we generally have a, a field application scientist that come in, literally parachute in two days, three days, install the equipment in their lab, and then two days of full training, and they'd right. watch watch the the techs to do the rest. You know. So, what were you passionate about when you were a kid? Uh, were you looking at? I was uh, passionate my... about soccer. I wanted to be a soccer star, <laughs> and then I realized now that I watch World Cup, and I'm like. Jeez, these guys are amazing. And so, you know, it never quite happened. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, it's never too late. There's a, I'm sure there's a senior circuit somewhere that you can join. I'll go you know with what? you. <laughs> I played, I played here in 110 degrees in Arizona. And it was just like, it killed me. And I don't normally drink big gulps, but I went to a 7-Eleven and drank three of those after I was <laughs> sweating bullets from a... Well, you shouldn't be playing at 110 degrees in Arizona anyway. <laughs> I know. That probably makes sense. Uh, so who's who's your team? England? Liverpool. I, I mean, yeah. I, 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 I like I like the England, English, England team this year. But I got to tell you, after they were done, I was really sort of, I was really sort of, uh, you know, half-minded. I wanted... I wanted uh, between Argentina and Morocco, you know, I, I, I'm still, I'm now I'm just rooting, routing for rooting for uh, Argentina. I want Messi to get his, his uh, world cup. Well, I don't think anybody except for people who are French are rooting for France. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I, I was always growing up. Like my dad used to play soccer and I, yeah. I love Pele. Like that was yeah. my guy. Used to so Brazil was always my team. And I was just a, uh, very disappointing. Uh, I know the way that they just like bombed out of the whole thing, you know, it's crazy, but all of these teams like Spain and, you know, yeah. Belgium, I mean, they're all like the most, I'm the most, uh, like the, the most sort of uh, the Argentina and the Netherlands game. Yeah. Talk about hating each other and <laughs> talking yeah. smack, right? It was a great, great game though. The, yeah. The, it was it was great. Every year you have like a, a Cinderella team. So this year it's Morocco, but you know, yeah. uh, it's uh, it's too bad. I I was a, in last World Cup. I was in Spain and I yeah. watched the, uh, Russia and the and Spain and Russia beat them on, on penalty kicks. Man, that country was devastated. It felt so bad. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But, and you in '98, I was in England. Yeah, and so the cool thing now in 2026, you know, it's here. It's yeah. gonna be great. I know. I can't wait. Um, I have a couple of questions that I, I go through and I ask all my guests uh, before I go through. But wanted to, uh, are you a music guy at all? Are you into music? Yeah, I like EDM. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so I don't know. I, I mean, I, I like some EDM too. I, I just don't know if this is a, a relevant question for you because uh, if you had to choose like only five albums that you have to listen to uh, for, you know, the next uh, 10 years uh, or whatever. Do you have an idea of what albums it would yeah, be? Yeah, so the, the EDMs don't have albums because I know like that's nobody... why. That's why I said I'm not sure if it's a relevant question. It's just like songs and beats. Okay, so let me tell you, um, because I also grew up in England with all the with all the good music there. Dark Side of the Moon, Pink Floyd, right? You um, two, Joshua Tree, right? Um, I have an album which I I used to watch the American show, The Monkees. Yeah, yeah. So I've got that album, the Hey, Hey, The Monkees album. I love that. Um, let's see. Those are the three. I'm trying to think who else there was, there is. Um, 
I used to love reggae music too in England. I really did. But I, I uh, Bob Marley and the Whalers uh, with the with the song Exodus that 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 particular album. Um, so those are the four. I don't remember the fifth now, but uh, yeah, I see I see Kiss in the back. Yeah, it's that's the Ozzy Osbourne. That's, that's my one, Exodus album. Us. Yeah, I've got the <laughs> same it. album. Yeah. Oh my God, you got all the all the. Uh, yeah, look at that. You got all of the 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 records. Oh. I have a bunch of yeah. vinyl. Yeah, I, have, I have collect vinyl. Um, so I wanted to get your thoughts on this. How do you think pharma will be involved in the cannabis industry? I fundamentally think there already are alias, alias, alias. I do think that um, when it has become, look, I mean, it, it can be dangerous in the sense that this is just my personal opinion mm-hmm. that you have a you have a plant that creates less side effects maybe no side effects. So it, it could be devastating and cannibalistic to the existing model. You know, uh, people popping pills is one thing. And, and I'm not, look, my, my wife works for the pharma industry. She's, she's been in there for 20, 30 years. And, you know, it's going to be a difficult one. I, I, it's a great question you're asking. I think that they're, they're, they're going to slow walk it in terms of clinical trials. I think you're going to see the smaller pharma companies embrace it much faster because if they create the disruptive aspect of not having the side effects to a specific therapeutic area and you know about it more than I do, knowing the strains that you know what those strains can do therapeutically, that is the game changer. Yeah, I I, I agree with you. I think they're probably, just if I had a crystal ball, I would say there's probably going to be two different paths. There's going to be mm-hmm. the pharmaceutical path because G- Jazz Pharmaceuticals did not spend $7.3 billion on, uh, on GW Pharmaceuticals just because of Epidiolex. Yeah. I mean, it just, you know, that they're already in the game. Uh, they're spending billions. That means they're going to expect, you know, tens of billions coming back to them. So uh, there are a bunch of different formulations. And I think they, they decided to take it to uh, Europe first before they deal with the FDA and start getting some approval for targeted, uh, you know, medicine uh, for certain conditions. So there will be a pharma path and there's no reason to resist it. There's a, there's, we can help each other. Uh, but I, I do feel there's still going to be this uh, supplementation therapeutic uh, aspect uh, because you I'm not sure how you can get rid of that because it, it's very difficult. Pharma is used to single components. All right, you have this uh, isomer, you have this component, and you have this binding affinity, and you go through, you do your clinical trials and all that stuff. But this plant has like 500 different components, as far as we know, maybe more, maybe around there. It's going to be very, very difficult for them to create you know, their traditional medical approach to those. So I think there's still going to be uh, this supplement. And there is there is a classification of medical food products, for, for instance, that can be, uh, you know, over the counter, but you know, show your driver's license or whatever it is when you go into a CVS store. So, you know, who knows? But I think that there definitely will be a uh, a dual path, and uh, you know, hopefully, hopefully, prohibition will be repealed. And it, when that happens, because we already have a case for that with alcohol, the states get to get to control their own interstate commerce, and then you have the federal government putting regulations in place on testing. So mm-hmm. now you'll be, this is 
everybody has to do this and you'll be in the forefront of doing that. Uh, I hope because uh, you're, you're a leader in the space as it is. And that's the way we can assure for, you know, good, safe products. Uh, yeah. Dark, and I think, I think that's, that's the unique opportunity the plant has that you just articulated is, um, you know, uh, it's all these unique, like my mom's got cancer and, in you know, she was having a lot of neuropathy and, and I went to a dispensary and I, I got her, you know, um, uh, you know, basically a tincture that has a certain balance of CBD and THC, right? Um, you know, um, so I think CBDG or, or you know, and so not, not necessarily really tr- tremendously helped her neuropathy and be able to relax. So, yeah. you know, whether... You know, there's a science component of it, and then there's the there's the there's the therapeutic patient outcome component of it. And I think the the unique opportunity we have is the, the that the plant we may be able to measure better in terms of the patient component as a starting point in the cannabis testing world, specifically for med, for medicinal stuff from a therapeutic outcome outcomes perspective. And yeah. I'm not saying the pharma world can't, but they they. They, you know, that they have their framework and their model and it's been in place forever. Not there's nothing wrong with it. But I think that's where you could wipe their slate clean and say, how do you measure patient outcome? And that would be a different way to look at it with respect to this plant, this industry, and really what we can do with it in the future. Yeah, I completely agree. Uh, have you consumed the plant yourself? I, I have a couple couple of times to be honest okay. with you. All right, yeah. so let's 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 then then I'll ask you my question. So I have uh, a few questions I ask all my guests. Uh, so the first one is: Please describe your first experience with cannabis. I'm floating in the air. <laughs> well, There's no uh, gravity. There's no what, gravity. I mean, is this is this six months ago or is this oh. twenty years ago or how old? No, no, no. You? This is this was about. Um, this was about three years ago. Okay. I was, yeah. And how did you consume it? Did you smoke a joint? Did you have an edible? Or I, I, I at that time I smoked a joint, but most recently I had an, I had an edible. Uh, and so you you smoked the joint. Uh, I'm assuming with with other people or mm-hmm. or by yourself. And then you and then your experience was positive. You said you were floating and you had a mm-hmm. a, a, a positive experience. Okay. Great. You know what? It's, it's 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 the levity of uh, when I say I've used the word word levity. There's a weight to there's a weight to living. There's a certain gravitational weight, yeah. and when when I was taking it, it was lifted, it, and it wasn't I was flying. It wasn't I was hovering like a balloon, but it was just like that weight was lifted, and your mind is completely numb. And you know how you. With us every day, there's so many things running through our mind. Like yeah. I got to do this X, Y, A, B, and Z. No, that was none of that. You don't. I don't. You know, I didn't have that. That was the difference. Yeah, I, I think it's a really good example of. Yeah, for me personally, it does connect me with my flow state because I've I've ADD and I've, I'm doing a million things and it, and it's a lot of stress. It's a lot of yeah. things when you consume and you're able to disconnect for things that don't really matter, you're able to really allow yourself just to be. And uh, I think that's a, that's a really good, you know, it's a really good example of uh, how to utilize cannabis. 
that means you you got something that that is aligned with you. You know, some people have some adverse effects. You you know, they tend to uh, get some anxiety or some stress and all that stuff. Yeah. But it is an individual experience uh, uh, for sure. So you got to know exactly how much you're taking in and what you're putting in your body, uh, cannabinoids and, and terpene profiles. Um, we already talked about music a little bit, but uh, do you remember what the very first concert that you ever attended was? Oh, it was. Um, and by the way, I was in new age music, by the way, because that sh- tells you my age. But I, I went to a. I'm in my fifties, uh, by the way, too. So I, I don't so know how old you the, are. <laughs> yeah, I went to uh, basically a, a. You know, there's so many damn concerts, but the one I remember was Tears for Fears. Uh, they're fan. I don't know if you've seen them lately. They're fantastic. They still sound great, like they did in the '80s. Oh yeah, yeah. incredible. They're very, very uh, good band. Uh, what was the last concert you went to? Oh, um, actually, and I'm a little bit softy. It was basically um, Adele. Adele's uh, great. Yeah. Um, is there anything that you're listening to? I know you said EDM. Is there anything that you're listening to these days that's cool that you want to share? Um, I mean, I'm listening actually to Afrobeats, believe it or uh, not. I, I really like the African. It's not, it's, it's sort of an effusion Afro, African beat music. And it's come a long way, and it's you know I'm not saying it didn't, but it's different, and it's and I like the thing with with me is I like different music genres mm-hmm. as well, and occasionally you know obviously with our age now it's like whenever there's a party and you put on 80s music everybody starts singing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, you yeah. know, uh. it was funny. I was talking to my friend. I was like, I did not like 80s music in the 80s. Yeah, like, I really didn't like it. It was too mainstream. I want to listen to like something heavier or or. Uh, like old school rap or, or, you know, something. But now I'm listening to eighties music. I'm like, man, I went to see Billy Idol not too long ago. Yeah. I rocked. He was great. And I that music. Face. Yeah, oh my God. That, yeah. I have a story really quick for you. So yeah. I, I saw Billy Idol, I don't know, five, six, whatever many years ago at a place called the Viper room in LA. Okay. So yeah. Billy comes out, he looks great. Uh, he's got no shirt on. He's got some abs. Uh, he was a little younger back then. And they start playing Eyes Without a Face. And yeah. he goes, fuck, does anybody know how the song goes? He did not remember the song. I have video of him singing the song of somebody's iPhone. That's great. <laughs> so, <laughs> that's, those, those kind of concerts are memorable because I go to a lot of them. Um, what has cannabis meant in your life? What has cannabis meant in my life? I think it, it's, it's meant, uh, you know... Um, not even just, it's not even the consumption piece, which I don't, I hardly do at all. It's opening my mind in many ways. And what I mean by that is it's opportunity. Cannabis means opportunity, right? And it, it also means you have one chance at this. And the way what we, what we do in cannabis, we have one chance to do the right thing. The one thing I don't like is I don't like repeating history and we got to learn from our mistakes and learn from other industries and openly listen to people and not get defensive. And we're not like that. I wasn't seven, eight years now. You know, if you even go to MJ BizCon, it's mind boggling. I mean, just insane. It's lovely yeah. to see it, you know? Yeah, it's a great point because I, I this year, I, it was the first year I didn't go in many years. But uh, I, I don't think in the last three years, besides COVID, I was able to actually walk through. Because you see all these people, you know, and 
you never actually make it through the whole thing. So, yeah. All right. So final bonus question. Please describe what your room looked like growing up. Oh, my room was uh, basically in England. It was on the third floor overlooking. Uh, it's called Chiswick High Road. It, Chiswick is like this place near Hammersmith where the Hammersmith Odeon was, where all the bands used to come play by a mile away. And inside the room, they had, they had, it was the time where they were using wallpaper. And wallpaper had all of these floral, you know, the, like the fleur de lis kind of patterns, of like these flowery mm-hmm. patterns. And it was blue. Everything was blue. And so it, white, white sort of ceilings. They had these carvings in the white. It was just basically, um, um, plaster carvings that had like these, um, it was almost like mold, uh, wooden, uh, you know, but it's not the mold we're talking about, like fungus mold. And then it was, it was this wallpaper that had really a lot of blue patterns and green carpet and a window that overlooked the little, that, like the high street. And that was, uh, that was my, uh, that was my room. That's amazing. No posters on the, on the walls or anything. No, you, you know what? Puncture the wallpaper. Yeah, I was in the post. I, I don't know. We didn't have enough money to, to buy posters. And yeah. I, I collected records more than anything. And I, I, I actually liked uh, collecting books and stuff like that. But then it wasn't collecting. It would be the library thing. But it was mostly, you know, and I always liked, I liked riding bikes. I'd like, I'd ride bikes to central London, like to Hyde Park all of that. And that would be sort of fun, you know? So. Cool. Uh, now where can people find out more about Pathogen DX contact you or whatever else that you want to. Yeah, I know. I appreciate this opportunity, man. This is, I love that personal piece of it more than anything. You can tell I'm really, I'm really happy about this, this, this podcast. Thank you. Um, we're at www.pathogendx.com. Uh, people can reach out uh, to me at info at pathogendx.com. You know, you can reach out on LinkedIn. Uh, just type in Milan Patel Pathogen and you'll see me and connect. I'm, I'd love to connect up with people. You bring a lot of connection together. I really appreciate it. It's an, And I, there's nothing more important than connecting people from a personal standpoint. So thank you, Len. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Milan. This is great, man. I appreciate it as well. So uh, hopefully I'll see you soon. Yeah, absolutely. Let's do it. You know? All right. Take care. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Infused, a cannabis talk show, is a -a one-of-a-kind look inside the cannabis industry. Meet the amazing people who make cannabis businesses bloom as they join host Nick with Francesca and Mike for creative cannabis conversations. Get an honest look at the business of cannabis, including trends, best and worst practices, products, education, and advocacy. Whether you're kind of curious or running a cannabis, Infused has can of conversations that count. Infused is available on YouTube and is now streaming as part of the PodConnects network.